Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus. We are back after a long sojourning. We're training, in a way, for the Exodus, but a long sojourning uh, through an Advent series and then a a New Year's reminder from the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're back to Exodus. And as a reminder of where we've been so far, we're in Exodus chapter 5, as a reminder of where we've been so far, we have seen Moses be called of God to deliver his people. We have seen Moses wrestle with his call. We've seen him experience opposition, both from the people he was sent to redeem and then uh, the authorities which he's soliciting redemption from. So we've seen him assaulted on all sides, and then we've seen God promise. We've seen God reveal himself in very powerful ways and a promise of signs which are to convince Pharaoh in one sense, but have the their intended effect is really to harden his heart. And uh, so now we're coming to Exodus chapter 5. And um, our sermon title, I hope, is provocative. Um, God, why have you done evil to this people? I hope it's a provocative title for a sermon because I hope you'll see it's lifted right out of, as you'll soon see, verse 22. But the reason I chose that is, A, it's the word of God, and it's because it hits at one of our values at Redeemer, which I just want to highlight Uh, We want this to be a community where no question is off limits, where we can ask questions like this and that we can trust that the Word of God is sufficient for all things and can handle our really big questions like, God, why have you done evil to this people? And then we get to wrestle with God, like Jacob, and see our Savior more clearly and appreciate more fully the complexity of His Word. Because our account today is one of oppression for sure. We have oppression um, of somebody who, is, uh, who has rebelled from God's design for leadership. Pharaoh should be in a position where he's serving the people who he's leading, but he's not. He's oppressing them. But we also have the other type of leader. We have Moses who is not exactly leading the way God has called him to lead either. God gave him a script. He goes to Pharaoh as we're about to see, and he doesn't relay that script accurately. He changes God's message, and it has some consequences for him. But ultimately, the question in our text today, which is near and dear to all of your hearts and our application today, is the, the text is really about, is God going to keep his promise? That's actually what's at the heart of the text. Does God keep his promises? And as it's so often been, as we've read, we're reading about this, it feels like an, it's an unfolding event. You and I have knowledge about how the story ends, but as Pharaoh and Moses are living this out in real time, they don't know how the story ends. So as we read it today, have that perspective. But I, you, I would invite you, perhaps, to do something as I read. I'm going to spend a lot of time in verse 22, where that question is pulled out of, reflecting on how we can respond to hardships. But as you listen today, try to not think about the bricks, but try to listen as somebody who really experiences hardships in your own life. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, I'm going to read all the way to 6, 1. Exodus 5, 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and saw, said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I may obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he falls upon us with pestilence or sword. 
But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens the same day. Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straws to make straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of the bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it because they are idle. For they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." So the taskmaster and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get the straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urged and saying, Complete your work. Your daily task each day as there there were was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, Pharaoh said, You are idle. You are idle. That is what you say. Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, and you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Our first point today in summarizing that I don't want to just skip over those first 21 verses, but like I said, I will be making more out of verse 22 through 6-1 today. But uh, that first, uh, first verse through the 21st, uh, the main point that I think we should see here is that we should expect trouble in this world, including real physical suffering. I don't want to breeze over it again, like I, like I just said, um, but I want to just call your attention to a couple things um, before we move on, because it's important, I think, to understand the whole story of why Pharaoh feels like, uh, why Moses feels like God is doing evil through Pharaoh. So the first thing, we could read verse 2, where Pharaoh answers, who's the Lord, one of two ways. The first, right, is uh, we could see it as an arrogant attitude, right? Or we could say, we could, some people, uh, some, some commentators posit, maybe Pharaoh's ignorant, and when he asks, who is the Lord, He really doesn't know who the Lord is. But I think when we look at the pattern of Pharaoh's life from the beginning, when he's killing the Hebrew boys, through his opposition to Pharaoh, his lack of desire to even get to know who the God of these people who descended from Joseph is, that lack of interest multiplied out through how he responds in this initial passage seems to me to indicate he's arrogant, and the future of Pharaoh indicates this is arrogance. 
Pharaoh's heart's going to continue to be hardened the more and more he hears the word of the Lord. But Moses, too, I want us to see, so Pharaoh's arrogant, obviously, but Moses, he fails in two approaches, right? So if you look in verse 1, he tries a really hardball approach. He just goes and say, let the people go. But that's not exactly how the Lord asked. The Lord originally told him, hey, ask the people we could go out and have a feast. So verse 1, he tries the hardball approach. In verse 3, he's trying a diplomatic approach. Well, we don't want to miss him again, right? Pharaoh is wicked, and like his typological father, Satan, he's going to oppress and destroy for his own gain. Pharaoh is, uh, Pharaoh is never going to let the people go, and Moses has failed in both approaches, which is to say to us that we should expect in our lives genuine trouble and hardship when we're trying to convey the word of the Lord to people who are in charge. And diplomatic approaches are going to fail, and hardball approaches might fail, but we still have to be faithful. But then, let's keep looking in this verse, you know, 1 through 21. Pharaoh is oppressing the Israelites because he's offended that anyone would have an allegiance to anyone other than him. Pharaoh's main problem is that he doesn't fear the Lord. But the symptom of that lack of fear of the Lord is Pharaoh thinks he's an abusive leader. He thinks that everything is about him. We know that the Egyptians did allow some communities, some religious communities, to practice their religious uh, affiliations on their own terms, right? So some Egyptian, uh, during some periods, some religious groups would be able to, for instance, go three days journey, offer sacrifices, and return back into Egypt. We know that to be the case. But something about this request from Moses and Aaron has frustrated something within Pharaoh to the extent that he denies. And I think it's this. I think it's the fact that the, that the Israelites are demonstrating that the work that they're being asked to do by Pharaoh is not what they think is their most important work. They know they have a value other than serving Pharaoh, and that makes Pharaoh incessant. The issue is that Pharaoh is upset that his work requirements don't seem all that important because he responds to them, you're taking your people away from their work. The work I've asked them to do is very important, and Moses and Aaron have a godly perspective on work, and they're like, but it's not more important than the Lord, and that affects Pharaoh. So he oppresses them. It's the mark of a narcissistic and abusive leader to control people who don't do the bidding of said leader. Perhaps you've worked for people like this. You should maybe ask, am I one of these types of leaders? Jesus teaches us how we should lead. Just hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 20, for instance. Jesus called to them and said, You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them? It should not be this way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A mark of a Christian leader is one who primarily thinks of his task as service not as directing or controlling. So that's there, but then uh, the other very real thing that's present in the text, and there at the end when the foremen of Israel go to Moses and Aaron after they come out from Pharaoh and they ask a, a genuine question. They say in verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and to put a sword in their hand to kill us. The sufferings of this world will often make people doubt godly leadership. Like, is this really the will of God? There, are, there may be a day when fidelity to God's word 
right, requires you to uh, sever a relationship with an employer or even to sever a relationship with a child. My job is to relay God's word to God's people, and that has genuine consequences in today's world. I remember pastoring in Louisville before we moved down here in Humana. uh, Every June would have a massive flag that they would hang down and uh, I was always cognizant of, the, of our members who were employers there that there could be a day when what, what it means to be godly has a genuine harmful consequence to them and to their way of being. But you don't have to be a pastor to accurately relay God's word. I know some of your stories about how relationships have been lost on account of God's word. And I know that others have looked on you with judgment or confusion. Why don't you accept me or why don't you want to do this? Take heart. They did the exact same thing to Moses. They did the exact same thing to Moses. The people looked at Moses and said, the Lord look at you and judge. They aren't happy with Moses' leadership, but that doesn't change the fact that Moses is doing the right thing. So that's the context of this hardship, of the question, this very real question then that Moses goes to the Lord, which brings us to point number two, where we'll be really camping out now. Real faith, real faith is honest to God about our trouble. Real faith is honest to God about our trouble. I don't get the sense from our text that Moses resents the people's question. I don't think that Moses resents the people. He does not bite back at them, but he goes straight to the Lord. Verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. It's a fair question, maybe. Let's see how Moses deals with real faith in the light of his trouble. First, Moses takes his complaints directly to God. He takes his complaints about God to God. On what basis does Moses believe that he can complain openly to God, even suggesting that God has done evil? He goes to God because he knows that he's in a covenant relationship with God. God has already promised Moses that he's in relationship with them. He's given him a sign that he's in relationship, and he's given him signs of his own authority. So Moses knows in this situation, in this relationship, he can go to him with his troubles. Moses actually does this frequently throughout the rest of Torah. On this moment right here, commentator Victor Hamilton asks, what's the difference between when the Israelites grumble, Numbers 11, for instance, And Moses asking this question right here, why have you done evil, God? What a question. What's the difference? Victor Hamilton wrote, Moses never talks about God behind God's back. And God can take such frontal language, such searching questions, if for no other reason than he has amazingly strong self-esteem. That's a funny way to put it. But critique, he says, never gets God down, end quote. A life of faith is one lived in honesty. And Moses is a perfect example of what genuine faith looks like. Moses acts like the promises of God are true, so he goes to the God with whom he has a relationship with, and he says, this seems off. You promised this, and you've not done this. This seems off. You said this would happen. Why is it not? False faith does not return, but slanders. Well, I knew it was all made up anyways. And what does he go to God with? Moses has two complaints. The first is, why have you done evil to this people? And the second is, why have you sent me? One of the reasons 
guys, that I love scripture are the, are the honesty of the human condition. I think sometimes maybe it's the, the face we feel like we have to put on. Maybe it's the songs we sing over time make us think this way. But that everything in the Christian life is supposed to be triumphant. And everything is supposed to be victory. But the truth is, is that I love the honesty of Scripture because the human condition is on display. Not everything is triumphant. People die. Illnesses persist. Darkness hovers. That's real life, and that's how the Bible talks about life. There's this band I really love, a band called Citizens. They have this song called I'm Living in a Land of Death. And it's one of my favorite songs to listen to in really heavy times. This is how it opens. I'm living in a land of death. The trees are burning gray. There's a smoldering smoke overhead, and the night looks the same as the day. Anybody ever been there before? Moses, when he asks this question, is lamenting. Why have you done this evil, Lord? He knows he's been chosen for this task, and things only seem to be getting worse because he's being faithful. Not because he's been unfaithful, but because he's been faithful, things seem to be getting worse. Exodus 5, 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's unable to this people. You've not delivered your people at all. Just listen to how many yous there are in this sentence anyways. Your name, you've not delivered your people. In relationship counseling, they always tell people, you shouldn't say you. You should say, I feel like, right? I feel like I went in your name. I feel like these things. But Moses is real life, real faith, real relationship Lord, you've not done this. So we shouldn't confuse faith and happiness. Faith is honest living before God in light of his promises. It goes to God in hardship and says why. Even demanding why. Do you remember how Moses had originally tried to deliver the people by striking the taskmasters? He, he knew he was going to deliver the people, so he went and he tried to strike down the people. He struck down the taskmasters. He ran away. Moses had witnessed the hardships increased and goes to the Lord and complain as if he sees God's not doing anything. So is God doing evil? That's a, that's a good question to ask at this point. Is God doing evil? Moses is saying, you're doing evil. Why have you sent me? Is God doing evil? Again, one of the things that makes me love this text so much is its honesty. I hope you feel free as a result of this to pray like Moses. It's an audacious question that Moses asks. He uses the exact same word in two places, equivocating the actions of God and Pharaoh here. That's the exact same word in Hebrew. It's the same in your English translation because your translations are great. Moses is praying, in effect, God, your inaction is the exact same as Pharaoh's action. It's just as harmful. So evil is a fine translation. It could be translated harm or affliction, but that doesn't really change the meaning that much. From Moses' perspective, God's inaction is hurting the people as much as Pharaoh's oppressive actions. There's a story that's biographical. I have this uh, memory. I was talking actually with uh, Susan Johnson and Devin uh, today about it, where... um, the tornadoes that came through uh, Auburn, or well, not, they actually missed Auburn, but uh, Tuscaloosa, Coleman, Birmingham, uh, just north of Auburn. In 2011, there was a question in the college uh, ministry group we were part of, is, is God in the whirlwind? Like Job talks about, I'm talking to this campus minister. 
And uh, the campus minister and I are kind of having just a candid conversation, and, and this campus minister is not convinced that God is in the whirlwind. Um, uh, that, that, that person's position we would call open theistic, but that's irrelevant. Um, but the position is something like, well, God comes after the storm and he picks up the pieces. And I always felt like that's a really unsatisfactory God, not one really worthy of my worship. Because if he's not powerful enough to stop the storm, why is he worthy of my life? Uh, I've debated whether or not to share this, even up to the moment, but I'm just going to share a part. Part of my background is relationships which have been harmful. And that's the most I'll say. My family's still alive, still around. This goes out on the internet. But uh, it's not all been great. And one of the questions in this conversation as the campus minister I'm going back and forth with is to say, if God is not powerful enough to stop it, he's not worthy of worship. But I believe, and I hope by God's word I'll be able to show you today, but I really genuinely believe that God is able to use what somebody meant for evil for good. And God can take a moment and not go behind the mess and sweep it up like a, like a cosmic janitor. What a loser to worship. Instead, he is planning and ordaining things which are good for me, even though temporarily they're, they hurt, Right? So let's ask the question, is God doing evil here? And I'm indebted to a couple of resources here. There's, a, there's an essay by Daniel Howard Snyder in a book called Reasons for the Hope Within. Uh, it's a little more academic, but uh, the overall conclusions are informative for me here. And then an essay by Greg Welty, which you can find on TGC. Uh, TGC has all these great uh, essays on theological things, which have organized this for me to talk about. So let's answer this question, is God doing evil here with the unbiblical answers, okay? We'll go unbiblical first. Everybody clear on that? This, these, these are the unbiblical ones. The first one is God is letting Pharaoh act however he wishes so that he does not violate his free will. That has to be rejected on two counts. First, Moses' free, uh, Pharaoh's free will does not restrict the creator of all things sovereignty. And then second, it's irrational to suggest that God would prioritize Pharaoh's free will over the Israelites who don't want to be oppressed. Because then God would be a respecter of persons, right? So that's out. Number two, unbiblical position, God created a world where Pharaoh can do evil things as a fact of nature and God can't violate the law of nature. No, evil's not a part of the created design. It did not exist in, in the garden. And more actively, right, God does not passively sustain the universe. Everything happens by the word of his command, and God regularly interrupts human history. Praise the Lord for that, right? He regularly answers your prayers. I'm very glad he violates the laws of nature all the time for me. Okay, so those are the unbiblical answers. Here are suboptimal, but not unbiblical answers to the question, does God do evil? Maybe God is punishing the Israelites here. This is less relevant, but something sometimes people think, like, maybe I'm suffering because I've done something wrong and God needs to punish me. In, in one sense, perhaps, because God does discipline those he loves, so he might take us through a trial to show us ways which we're leaning on lesser things, we're trading a greater good for some lesser thing. That does happen, right? But the rain also falls on the unjust, so 
this isn't exactly clear-cut Deuteronomic, right? Maybe the second one is, right? The second suboptimal, but not necessarily best answer is God is making them ready to serve others by removing their selfishness. Sometimes people think that God uses sufferings like this, maybe hard things, to grow us in the faith, and he does. He does take us through trials. We see on the other side his faithfulness, so our faith does grow. It does happen, but is that what's happening here? Maybe, but I think, as we'll see in just a minute, Exodus 6.1 clarifies exactly what's happening. I don't want to go there yet. The third is suboptimal, but possible answer, is that God is getting their attention. Sometimes people suggest that God uses evil and pain as a way of getting our attention so that we be prepared for his return. Jesus certainly talks about things like this. When the tower falls, the Gospel of Luke, when he says, you should look at this as a sign, get your attention. These people, this happened to them, so wake up and, and repent. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, these things happened to them as an example for you. God does cause trials to prepare us to repent or be delivered. But unfortunately, what the Bible teaches about the problem of evil is just more complex than those five answers are. It's more complex than bullet points, and we have to live with the fact that we're created beings and God is our creator, which candidly is very offensive to all of us, including me, because I don't like to be a created thing. I like to be a controlling thing. I like to be in charge of all that to create things so to not know things is hard for me. To not have a, a bullet point, a systematic explanation for why things happen to me or this world frustrates me. I'm about to make peace with the fact, like our call to worship, some things are higher than me. If we look at the lives of Job, Joseph, and Jesus, we see kind of three truths which are all simultaneously true at the same time and I think are relevant in Exodus 6.1 as well. The first is that God aims at greater goods. So he's always looking out for the better thing. Romans 8, 28 is probably a passage familiar to all of you. He's going to work out all things for good, right? And God often intends these greater goods to come about by ways of various evil. That one's the hardest pill to swallow, but just bear with me. We'll get there, okay? But then three, and this is the one that frustrates us, and where lamentation then we're allowed to go to the Lord and say, I'm frustrated that I don't understand Number three, God leaves created persons in the dark. Oftentimes, God doesn't tell us why he's doing what he's doing. In the dark about which goods he, inti- he intends for which reasons and which evil, or about how uh, he intends on bringing good out of evil. It's one thing to acknowledge God's sovereign and purposeful providence over the moral evils uh, from Job, Joseph, and Jesus. It's another one, though, to claim that God is sovereign over all moral and all natural evils, but that's what the Bible repeatedly teaches. The Bible presents multitudes of examples of God intentionally bringing famine, pestilence, disease, rampaging wild animals, um, uh, blindness, deafness, even death itself, rather than permitting nature to just do its thing. And yet the truth of divine inscrutability, like we can't know always, Unless God tells us why he's using that method, we can't always know why. To the extent that God's spoken about a particular event in history, his judgments are unsearchable, like Romans, 8, or Romans 11 we just read. His paths are beyond tracing out. And like I shared about the story from my own life, right? part of the things that draw me to God is seeing clearly life after death when the, 
when my grandfather dies, I finally ask the question, what happens after death? Grandpa Robertson dies, I think to myself, what happens after death? And that starts a series of questions with Christians. But then when I reckon with grace and I ask then, why Lord me? Uh, It becomes all the more clear all the other things I've even done and harm I've caused to people and repentance I've had to seek. But the clearest example of how God sovereignly uses what men intend for evil to accomplish a greater good is the cross. Here, Acts 4, 27, 28. This is how the Holy Spirit talks about the cross and moral evil. It's the word of God. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Who's acting here? Herod and Pontius Pilate are the ones who are guilty for crucifying the Son of God. 1,000%. But in this prayer from the church gathered together in Acts 4, they are praying, recognizing that God is the one who ultimately made this happen. God did not prevent these moral acts because he's aiming for the greatest good. The giving of the life of God for the sake of those who are his. He allows the Son of God to be crucified, even sending the Son to take on flesh knowing the Son will be crucified, to swallow up death in itself by being allowed to be put to death himself. He breaks sin's just curse against sinners by himself being unjustly cursed, Galatians. And then he opens communion with God for you and I, again, by going away It's not nice, right, to go away, but going away to send the Spirit so that ultimately we'd have God dwell within us. Why does this question matter? If we wrap our minds around the fact that God is working out a good for us that we might not see in a moment, it means we can endure a lot of things. It means we can endure any temporary harassment or sorrow. Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. What's Paul saying we don't lose heart about? All the things that are hard about this life. All the things that God seems to be pressing me with. I don't lose heart. Verse 16. For though our outer selves are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things which are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, in verse 17, when it says our momentary light affliction, do you know how the Septuagint translates Exodus chapter 5, 22? Why, God, are you afflicting your people? It's the exact same word here. The afflictions that God allows us to walk through are ultimately accomplishing a greater good, which enables us to say with Paul, even though my outer self is wasting away, Who feels like their outer self is wasting away today? Your inner self is being renewed day by day. And it's preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. How do you walk through hardship in this life? It's not to pretend like life isn't hard or that you have to just put on a face and pretend everything is victory in Jesus. It is. But man, this life is hard too. And when we know that God is sovereign, we can go to the Lord and say, God, And we can lament. Why are you allowing this to happen? When will you relent? God answers this question here. God meets us 
in the honesty by reminding him, reminding us of his promise, Exodus 6.1. God knows that Moses can't lead the people of God without perceiving the increasing trials they're going to go through. Things don't get easier for the Israelites after this. It gets harder for them unless he pulls back the curtain for Moses to see his redemptive plan. So you see it, Exodus 6.1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out, and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God's going to crush Pharaoh. He's going to crush Pharaoh so much that Pharaoh is going to send them out of the land. Who's the he? It's, it's not the Lord. Pharaoh's going to want the people out of the land. But if you remember, it's God who even brought the Israelites into Egypt in the first place. Where do we find out that it's the one God who's brought them here? Not just because, remember, Joseph is sent before to prepare. Genesis 15, all the way back, the first promise of covenant. Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, know for certain, just 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted. Same word, same exact word. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with a great possession. So here's the deal. God has prepared his people for this moment to judge the Egyptians, to crush Pharaoh, to crush Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's wicked, not just the Israelites, but to everybody. He's going to annihilate Pharaoh's household. And then he's going to prepare his people to form a nation. He's going to plunder Egypt on their behalf. And they will leave Egypt with the treasury that they get to use to form a great nation. So how do we live in this. Well, first, I want you to see appreciate God's mercy with Moses' lamentation. God does not reprimand Moses or accuse him of making irresponsible or blasphemous accusations. Some of us have this perspective of God that our relationship with him is us contingent on getting the details right, as if it's not a real relationship, that we're not safe to actually be honest with him. God does not reprimand Moses for saying, Why are you doing evil? He's merciful. And this is because Moses' act of prayer is an act of faith. When he goes to God with his complaint, that's different than grumbling about God. I'm going to turn to the song I shared earlier. Again, it opened with that acknowledgement we live in a land of death, but it closes with a poetic but realistic description of the life we live in on this side of eternity. The kingdoms of man have all decayed. The ruins of progress turn to waste. The gods of greed lay in their graves Darkness is everywhere. But there's a path in the dark that has emerged. I can see a great life, light beyond this curse, a brilliant blaze that is your word, a beacon of hope that burns. And I focus my captivated gaze on the radiant light of Jesus' face. The water of life is all I crave, only your word remains. So much more than precious gold is this beauty I behold. Give me the glorious reward of knowing you, my King, my Lord. Moses knows the Lord. So he goes to him in honesty. And that not stuffing things down is true faith. What does it look like to live a Christian life? It's to go to the Lord and be honest to God. So how do we bring our hurts to God? How do we do that? Two things as I close. Pray laments about the evil you experience. Don't pretend that life is easy when you go to, the, go to the Lord in prayer. Don't pretend like you have it all together. That's insane. He knows everything. He knows you don't have your life together. He, he's watching it. Why would we pretend with the one who's the lover of our souls? 
So be honest with him. This hurts, Lord. Why are you doing this? I've prayed those prayers recently, as I know some of you have as well. But then grow in your knowledge of all the ways God's revealed himself in the world. There's a book I read early on in the faith which helped me move past some of that past hurt. It's a book called Spectacular Sins by a guy named John Piper. And then he says, this truth, when you begin to reckon with it at first, it's like a tire iron to the heart. It hurts a little bit. You're like, what is happening? But then as you study scripture, you grow in your knowledge of all the ways that God reveals himself in, the world, in, the, in his word, your faith grows and you can begin to see and trust. If God brought the Israelites through this, he will bring me out through this and there really will be a greater good for me. And then you'll look back in your own life and you'll see, I see the hand of God in that thing that was so hard. And now I know what the greater good was. You won't get there, though, unless you're honest with God in your prayers first. You see, faith, again, is more than knowing the right things. It's more than a content download and this acquisition of facts. Faith is knowing that you go to God for his promises and you claim them. Faith asks for updates and is honest about the delays and the hurt the delay causes. Faith is trust in action, waiting patiently, but not pushing aside feelings or frustrations about the evil that we experience. Jesus Christ, is a, he's acquainted with our affliction. He knows what it's like to be us. So let's go now to him in prayer. Lord, we know ultimately that if evil was chaotic, had no purpose, could not be redeemed, you would not have entered into it. So as we prepare ourselves to take the supper, let's remember, Lord, your body is broken and your blood is shed for us, the most ultimate evil, a perfect spotless lamb slain unjustly for people who don't deserve it, us. But why? Because you're merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And it's true, Lord, your ways, like Jay read earlier, are sometimes unsearchable. And it's very difficult sometimes to understand what you're walking us through. So help us, Lord, to have faith to approach you honestly as your children. To be frank when we're frustrated with delays, waiting on you to fulfill your promise in us. And then also, Lord, give us faith to continue to walk, not by sight, but by faith, trusting you that you will, in fact, bring us to glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.